our Savior, our Lord. It is good for us to come and to pause and consider what we have sung concerning your birth, concerning the gospel, concerning your life and death and resurrection, all for us. It's good for us to sing about such matters, Lord. good for us to stand in these truths and to rest upon them and find joy and delight in them. All of our sin, O oh Lord, You have washed away. Your sacrifice was accepted and, and it is sufficient. And we have been pardoned of all of our guilt. That's what we sing about. That's what we're celebrating, Lord. That's why we thank You this morning. Thank You for standing in our place. Thank You for being born in the likeness of human flesh. Thank You for living the perfect life that none of us could live and living it on our behalf. We thank You, Jesus. Would You bless us now as we open Your Word? Would You engage us with the text, Lord? Engage our hearts with the text. Engage our minds with the text that we might understand what You're saying. That we might have it applied by Your Spirit into our hearts. I do pray that what we do right now in this moment goes far beyond just intellectual understanding. That You would do things with Your living Word that only You can do. So make this passage compelling to us. Correct us. Convict us. Encourage us. Strengthen us. Save the lost who are here this morning. Humble their hearts. Break down their pride. And any other wall that might stand in their way. Bring them to repentance and faith in You. Lord, I pray that this text this morning would be so captivating for even us who are already born again, that no distraction would take up our time, would, would take up our attention. But the eyes in our head and the eyes of our heart would be locked in upon You, gazing upon Your glory and the good news of Your salvation so freely offered, freely given. Let us be thrilled this morning, Lord, as we consider you as Savior has been born for us. For your glory and for our good, Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. I invite you to take your Bible with me this morning. Open it to the New Testament letter of Galatians. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. Very familiar passage, one that Brian already read for us this morning, one that I'm sure most of us have already been to before, will be good for us to look at again. You'll remember we're building off of the description by the angel to the shepherds in Luke 2 of the Lord's birth. In Luke chapter 2 verse 10 and 11, an angel appears to these shepherds in the field after Jesus has been born and he says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people, for unto you is born this day 
from the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And we've highlighted um, that the angel called the birth of Jesus good news and that he called the good news of great joy. And then last week we highlighted the fact that this good news of great joy is for everybody. Uh, whoever comes to, to faith and whoever has saving belief um, in Jesus can be saved. And this week we look at verse 11 of Luke 2 as kind of our structure, our guide. When the angel says, this day has been born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That is an astounding statement. Very, very profound. This angel has appeared from heaven. He has a multitude of glorious heavenly hosts following him, about to accompany him. He's appeared from heaven. He's talking to these lowly shepherds about a baby who's just been born. And he says of that baby, he is the Savior. And he says also of that baby, he is Christ the Lord. It is the first public proclamation that the baby named Jesus is in fact God in the flesh sent to save humanity. It's a wonderful, wonderful statement concerning Jesus. It's a summary statement of who His person is even in the manger, even in the swaddling cloths, even in His mother's arms. And that's what we're going to come to consider today out of Galatians chapter 4. That a Savior has been born who is Christ the Lord. Just coupling those two things together is a, a profound proclamation. That Christ the Lord would be the Savior Himself. Which we know means to be the sacrifice. The Redeemer. The one with mercy and grace and, and compassion and kindness and forgiveness in His heart. Well that's what we will come to consider Today out of Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. In this book and in this uh, particular chapter, chapter 3, Paul's been building up um, the distinction and the, the relationship between the law of God and, and the promise. And in the first part of chapter 4, he highlights who we were before Christ came and, and apart from Christ. We're, we're um, slaves, still slaves to the law. But then Christ comes and sets us free and makes us no longer slaves, but sons. That's what we come to look at first in Galatians 4. Now look with me in verse 4. We'll read just these few verses and come back and walk through them. Paul writes and says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The first thing we want to consider this morning from verse 4, the first part of verse 4, is that Jesus is not just this baby born. Jesus is Christ the Lord. We've maintained this whole time, this whole month, this whole Christmas season that the birth of Jesus is no ordinary birth. It's the incarnation. And when we say incarnation, we're using this as a summary word that refers to all of our salvation. 
Again, God taking on flesh and taking on flesh for the purpose of redeeming sinful flesh, standing in their place and living the perfect life we couldn't live so that He could be the perfect sacrifice on the cross, dying, taking on the penalty, wrath of God for our sins, being buried in our grave and raising on our behalf. That's the incarnation. And then ascending into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father and intercede for us even to this day. That's what we mean when we talk about the birth of Christ. That's the big picture of Jesus taking on flesh. And that's what we refer to. We'll find that as we look in a few moments later. Philippians 2, that's what Paul's talking about. Look at the glory of Christ humbling Himself on our behalf. Well, that incarnation is only possible if we believe and understand that Jesus is not just a man. He's the God-man. He is Christ the Lord. The word Christ is the Greek equivalent to the word Messiah that you'll find in the Old Testament. The word Messiah simply means anointed one, promised one, sent one. That's who we're talking about. Jesus is the sent one, the promised one, the anointed one who is the Lord. Yahweh, God, Jehovah. We find this in verse 4 in the two beginning phrases. Paul says and references time and the fullness of time had come and then he references God's action. God sent forth His Son. Let's first consider this phrase, fullness of time, because it's very important in considering God's work and view in our salvation. When we take that, that phrase out, the fullness of time, we understand that it has connotations of a of a plan being carried out. The, the birth of Christ wasn't happenstance, was it? It was planned. We can use the word uh, predetermined. We can use the word it was, it was calculated. It was God's sovereign decision for Christ to be born. In other words... The entire birth of Christ was orchestrated completely by God in every last detail. I even think to the minute of Christ's birth, to the exact moment, everything in culture, everything in the political sphere, everything in the social realm, everything in the religious realm, all lined up, culminated, have been building to this promised point of the birth of Christ. When the fullness of time had come, the exact moment God had ordained, He sent forth His Son. You know what that tells you and I? Your salvation is so important to God, He planned out every second of it. And not only did He plan it out, He saw it through perfectly. This is a, a glaring Glaring reality to me out of Galatians 4, verse 4, when Paul says a fullness of time, it just tells me this isn't offered to you by chance. It's not like the stars just happened to align so that things would work out. God had been building to the point to send a Savior through the womb of a woman so that He might die on our behalf. God cares immensely about humanity's salvation. We highlighted a a passage out of Ezekiel chapter 18 last week. God Himself said, Do I have any pleasure when the wicked perish? No. He doesn't. Exhibit A, 
Every detail of the coming of the Savior was orchestrated and planned out by God. The second phrase from verse 4 is this phrase, God sent forth His Son, which uh, should be highlighted, underlined, circled in your Bible because it is kind of the summation of what we're talking about, right? It's the summation of, of Christmas. God sent forth His Son, which means He dispatched Jesus for a mission. He commissioned Him for a task. He has a purpose uh, on His heart and in His mind. And we saw that out of Luke 18. Jesus says, I'm, I'm going to Jerusalem and, and this is what's going to happen. I'm singularly focused on my task at hand. My task at hand is the redemption of humanity. There's four things I think we can consider out of that phrase, God sent forth the Son. Four things that um, would be beneficial for us to understand. Number one, that phrase teaches us and implies relationship between God and His Son. And as we're considering that Jesus isn't just a normal baby, He's Christ the Lord, we see that in that phrase. He's the actual Son of God. There's a relationship there. And that relationship implies divine authority and divine glory and divine right. We can survey the New Testament if we we wanted to and come to the unmistakable conclusion Jesus is undoubtedly the Son of God, the Lord of all creation. And He is that way because He's one with the Father. He shares in the same nature of the Father, the same essence of the Father. They're only distinct, distinct between roles. Their likeness is identical, which tells us this profound reality. That He who is Lord of all creation, God over all things, glorious beyond comprehension, powerful beyond recognition, would come to earth for us. Don't, don't let that tickle your ego because you're, you're not that great. Let that serve to show you how glorious God's love is. It's not that we are so awesome that God would, would come and die for us. It's that God is so awesome He would come and die for us. So we highlight out of this, there's this relationship that's taking place here. Jesus is not some pointless renegade uh, stirring up the political atmosphere of Israel in the time. No, He is the divine God in the flesh. The very Son of the Father. Second, this phrase, God sent forth His Son, implies that Jesus is also not just divine, but pre-existent with the Father. And in that way, uncreated, self-sufficient, self-glorious, all those attributes we would ascribe to God the Father, we might and can rightly ascribe to Jesus Himself. John chapter 1. Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Verse 14, and that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. 
glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here's the self-sufficient, all-glorious agent of creation who has existed long before the foundations of the world were ever laid, who's existed outside of time in all power and all splendor and all magnitude, who upholds, according to Hebrews 1, upholds the universe by the word of His power, by the very breath of His mouth as He breathed forth all of creation and then sustain it. It's that Son of the Father who comes for us. When the angel declares to the shepherd, a Savior who is Christ the Lord has been born, he's declaring the immense glory and magnitude of God coming to earth in the likeness of human flesh. Church, this is a weighty matter. And this is far, far beyond our finite understanding. The, the magnitude of the realm of God Existing over and beyond and above all that you and I could ever hope to understand. Would humble himself and take on human flesh and live in this broken, fallen world for us. Is a glorious truth that we will spend all of eternity worshiping him for. Resting in, celebrating and learning about. Ten million years from now. In heaven with Christ. I guarantee you we will all still be in awe of the gospel. Probably more so than we are today. When we finally behold the glory and beauty of our Savior, we'll finally begin to get a slight glimpse of the magnitude that such a one would come from one like me. So we have these divine aspects being portrayed when Paul says God sent forth His Son. The relationship between God and Jesus. We have the pre-existence of the Son. He was sent forth. He wasn't created. But sent implies pre-existence. Number three, He was sent with a purpose. That's the word sent. You don't send someone unless you have something for them to do. If they have nothing to do, they just kind of wander into a situation. Christ doesn't wander into humanity. He was sent into humanity. And He was sent for the purpose again of the cross. We looked at this text last week, but I want to read it again. John chapter 3, verse 14, 15, 16, and 17. Talking to Nicodemus in verse 14, Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent, in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. He was sent for a purpose, and that purpose wasn't condemnation. Condemnation already existed. That purpose was salvation of sinners. So we look at the birth of our Lord and we ought to well up with thrill and hope and joy and gratitude at one who was sent for the explicit expressed purpose of saving the lost. Fourthly, when we consider Paul saying God sent forth the Son, 
we would be mistaken if we did not highlight that God is the initiator of our salvation. A truth we proclaim often and one we ought never forget. God had a plan in place to redeem us before you and I even knew we needed redemption. As we're walking our merry way in this world as children and young adults, sinful beyond recognition, God still has a plan of redemption for us. Adam and Eve have fallen. They've sinned against God in the garden and disobeyed Him. Before they even knew the significance of what they had done, God had a plan of redemption. Salvation is not man's idea, it's God's idea. And God had a plan in place since Genesis 3 to send a Savior. That's the love we talked about last week. The motivating factor of God's sacrifice. Absolute, pure, divine love. What else could it be to look at fallen creation and say, I want to redeem them. That church is love beyond what we have known apart from Christ. And by His grace can know through Christ. So Paul starts off in Galatians chapter 4 with this, in verse 4 with this um, profound, wonderful statement concerning the perfect, orchestrated, divine, ordained time of God sending forth His Son, His his relationship with Jesus, the pre-existence and divinity of Jesus, the purpose of Jesus being sent forth, and the um, uh, initiation of God in sending Him, all comes together to tell us this is divine work of God to save humanity. God wasn't tricked or forced or coerced or anything like that. Willingly, freely, freely came up with the idea Himself and sent forth His Son. It's glorious good news for you and I. Number two, let's consider the fact that not only is Jesus Christ the Lord born as a Savior, but He was born for us and like us. That's the second part of verse 4. He's born for us and born like us. Now this may seem redundant to consider or, or pretty obvious in the text considering the birth of Christ, but there's some real theological significance that we can glean from, from considering just how Jesus was born. First, the first phrase in there in verse 4 is born of woman, which we don't want to skip over. One that's been prophesied, Isaiah 7.14, specifically that He would be, pro, uh, be born of a, a virgin, right? And that comes true here in the birth of Christ testifying to His divinity, and, and that in itself upholds the divinity of Christ. But there's, there's even more. Being born of woman means Jesus identifies with us. And we desperately needed that. Christ didn't take on human flesh for the fun of it. He didn't take on bone and, and a body and dwell in this life and this world because it looked fun. There's a very specific purpose that Christ came and lived as a man. To be the sacrifice for man. Who's transgressed God's law? It's humanity. Therefore, who needs atonement? Humanity. How can one atone for his sin? 
It has to be a perfect sacrifice. Well, what man can be a perfect sacrifice? No man can be. Therefore, no man can atone for his sin. So God did it for us. God takes on flesh to stand in the stead of sinful flesh, be the perfect spotless sacrifice for sinful flesh. And the legal system of God's justice and and judgment and the necessity of, of the cross, the humanity of Christ is immensely important. He dies as a man because it's humankind that needed the atonement. That needed forgiveness. So there's two requirements for sacrifice. An appropriate sacrifice. One, be without blemish. And the other, identify with the sinner. And Jesus meets them both. It's this beautiful phrase we've already looked at this month. Substitutionary atonement. Christ takes on flesh and blood and bone and hair and nerves in His body and toenails and fingernails and teeth, eyelashes, that He might literally stand in your place. Better yet, that He might literally hang in your place. That He might have judgment pronounced upon Him that He might take in our condemnation. That the wrath that's been stirred up in God because of our sin might be taken in Christ and satisfied completely. Jesus didn't just take on flesh to make a good story. He took on flesh to adequately stand in your place. And to satisfy the justice and wrath and penalty of God for sin. Jesus stood in your place. So Romans 5.1 would be true. Therefore, Paul says in Romans 5.1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ takes on flesh to die in place of your flesh that we might have peace with God through Him. When Paul writes that he's born of woman, he's saying something significant. This one who is sent from God in all of His glory and power and authority and lordship was literally born as a man, as you and I. That's not the only way Paul describes his birth. He was born under the law. Which already, Paul has said, is the thing that condemns us and imprisons us. If you look in chapter 3, verse 23, Paul says, Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Why why is Paul saying that? Why are we held captive to the law? Why are we imprisoned by the law? Because it's the law that condemns us. Why does it condemn us? Because we don't keep it. We've broken God's law. And that makes us what? Guilty. We are guilty beyond measure. Inescapably guilty. My wife and I have been discussing and memorizing in various ways the Ten Commandments. You know how convicting that is? God, there's not a one that I haven't broken. I'm guilty. 
And I, before Christ, am under this guilt and under this condemnation and, and under this wrath because I have broken this law. And because I've broken this law, I'm accountable to the lawgiver. And He will one day judge me for it. Judgment is a reality and it's drawing closer and closer for every one of us. One gentleman said, the drumbeat of your heart is simply the drumbeat of your funeral procession. Because with each beat, we draw closer to death. Judgment is coming. And we are guilty and imprisoned under the law. Accountable. Not just to a loving God, but to a just, perfect, and holy God. And a just and perfect and holy God cannot simply ignore sin. Cannot simply sweep sin under the rug. What does a good judge do? He reckons punishment according to the guilt. And what does it say when we, who are creatures created out of dirt, have transgressed the law of an infinite, holy, all-powerful, divine God? The guilt there is immeasurable. And the punishment there is eternal. That's where we are apart from Christ. But Paul's got good news. He says Jesus was born under that which held us captive. He submitted Himself to that which imprisoned us. He submitted Himself to that which was our condemnation. The weight that we couldn't bear. The very law that we had broken. Christ was born under that same exact law. And if you're me, the first time I'm reading this, I'm thinking, who in the world would do that? I can't bear it. And I've never met anybody that can bear it. Who willfully submits to it? And it's Jesus. And He willfully is born under the law to bear it on your behalf. You and I are crushed under the weight of guilt for breaking God's law. And oh, how I would plead with you to seriously consider the impl implications of being guilty of breaking God's law. It's not like just getting a speeding ticket. And we are crushed under that weight. Hopeless and helpless and unable to bear it. And yet Christ is born to bear it up on our behalf. Bear it up for us. So that as we talked about last week, his life here, his 30-something years on this world, again, wasn't just for a joyride to test creation out. It was to live in perfection on our behalf, keeping every iota, every dot, every scribble of the law on our behalf. So that what Luther would call the great exchange would take place. Where at the cross, Christ would take our guilt upon Himself, the guilt of breaking the law upon Himself, and there impute His righteousness to us. We need Christ to be born under the law. And praise God He was born under the law because He was born under the law on your behalf to keep what you and I cannot keep. He was righteous where we're unrighteous. He was perfect where we're imperfect. He was able where you and I are unable. And the only, only righteousness we have before God is through Christ keeping the law on our behalf.
And let me tell you, it is only the righteous who get into heaven. And since you and I can't be righteous on our own, the righteousness of Christ is all we have to cling to. When Paul says he's born under the law, we praise God for that. Because we know He's going to bear it up on our behalf. Church, we need to understand the weight and significance of this. Sometimes we need to let the fear of death grip us. And the reality of God's judgment lay hold of our hearts. Paul says it like this in Romans 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. All the things mentioned in chapter 1. Maliciousness, deceit, murder, strife, envy, gossip, boastful, disobedient to parents. They're, we've all been God. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthlessness. He goes on and says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on all those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, do you think that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? I hope that verse strikes fear in our hearts. What a frightful thing that we might be presuming on the kindness of God and thinking just because God is kind, we're going to escape judgment. You know how many people believe that? We're all going to go to heaven because God loves us. And we're all going to escape judgment because God's a God of love. He's not going to condemn people to, to hell for eternity. Foolish, faithless man. Do you think you will escape the judgment of God. No, Paul says in verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to His works. Our works are guilt, church. And we need God's divinely orchestrated plan and sending forth His Son, born in our likeness, born under the law, to save us. That's the third thing there that we find in verse 5 this morning. Jesus is Christ the Lord. Jesus is born for us and like us. Number three, Jesus is the Savior who redeems us. There's this glaring, beautiful word in verse 5. T-O. Two. It's a description word. It tells us a purpose of something. Christ was born of a woman, born under the law. To do what verse 5 says. Redeem those who were under the law. And here's the birth of our Lord. Redemption offered to us who are beyond shadow of a doubt guilty. The word redemption is a beautiful word. It means to make right. To correct. To stand in the stead of again. Some of your Bibles may also use the word ransom. And that word is also appropriate. But I do want to use this disclaimer. 
God, Christ did not pay a ransom to the devil for your salvation. It's a popular thought, isn't it? He didn't pay a ransom to you. He paid the ransom to God. Ephesians chapter 5. If I can remember where Ephesians is at. Verse 2. Walk in love, Paul says, as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Sacrifice to God. Ransoming you from the wrath and penalty of God. We've been redeemed. Made right before God. Again, what Luther said, the great exchange where Christ has taken on our transgressions that we might take on His righteousness so that God Himself would actually look at us and see His Son. You know, Jesus prayed that before the cross in John chapter 17. Let's see if I can find it. John chapter 17. He's praying for the disciples. Praying for those who are going to believe because of them. And he says in verse 23, he's praying and he's talking about him and the Father, I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me. And get this loved them, talking about believers, con- converted believers. Loved them even as you loved me. Is that not an awesome statement? That God the Father might love you and I as He loves His own perfect Son, Jesus? How in the world is that possible? It's because verse 5 of Galatians 4, Christ was born to redeem those who are under the law. To keep it on our behalf. Uphold it on our behalf. Be righteous on our behalf. So that when we stand before the judge of heaven and earth, he would look at us and not see our guilt, but see Christ's righteousness. And in that moment, he will love us just as if we were his perfect, obedient, glorious son. I want to wrap this up this morning. Jesus finally in verse 5 unites us to God. There's another description phrase, so that. It's the purpose of the purpose. He came to redeem us so that we might receive adoption as sons. Remember in the context here, we're slaves and we're slaves to the law apart from Christ. But because of Christ, we're now adopted as sons and daughters. We have a heavenly father like we saw in the video today. We're family with God. Christ is born and bears up the law on our behalf that we might be united to God. And, and, and look, we're not just externally adopted. Verse 6, because you are sons, God has sent something again. There's this phrase appearing again. God sent. God sent. This time God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. It gets more, much more intimate, isn't it? Legally, we're adopted. But intimately, God's, the Spirit of His Son is in our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Which says, Hebrews 4, complete and total access to God through Christ. 
So verse 7, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And of a son, then an heir through God. Inheriting eternal life and eternal glory and eternal hope and joy and love and peace. All that Christ gets. We're with Him. We inherit with Him. This is what we celebrate in the birth. This is, this is what the angel is ultimately referencing when he says a Savior who is Christ the Lord has been born. He's saying one who's come in the timing of God on behalf of God in the likeness of man under the law for the purpose of redeeming you and uniting you to God forever. This is good news, isn't it? And it's good news of great joy, isn't it? And it is for everybody, church. We sit here today and we should be celebrating that if I've placed my faith and trust in Christ for salvation, I've been redeemed from my guilt and adopted as a son or a daughter. United with God for all eternity. We're not just opening presents on Christmas. We're not just putting up Christmas lights. I don't understand that. Get a better hobby. We're not just decorating the house and doing all these fun things and and having meals, church, we're celebrating that a Savior has come for us. We're celebrating that our guilt is pardoned in Christ. We're acknowledging our guilt in the birth of Jesus. We're owning up to it. And we're praising Him because the whole purpose of His birth is to remove that guilt and replace it with righteousness. So that now we are united to God as sons and daughters. Forever. God even indwelling us. It's a glorious birth. It's a transforming birth. Life changing birth. One of eternal consequence. And we will spend eternity thanking Jesus that He took on flesh. Philippians 2. Born in the likeness of mankind. Because we know He did it on our behalf. At this point, I would be a, a massive failure if I didn't call you to repentance. If I didn't call you to self-examination. If I didn't call you to realize that there's more going on here than eloquent speech. There's spiritual warfare going on in your heart right now over the very matter we've talked about. Bible says your heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. I was listening to a testimony just this morning of one of our church members. Two of our church members both said the same thing. I once thought I was saved and I wasn't. And God convicted me of sin. Revealed my guilt. Revealed the way of pardon. And saved me. That might be you this morning. For the first time realizing the weight of your guilt. Don't take that as a light thing. Let me tell you something. Who cares what anybody else thinks when it comes to your guilt before God? The only thing that matters is what God thinks. Maybe today you've realized I've transgressed the law of God. I am guilty. I am in need of pardon now. Behold, today is the day of salvation. 
The birth of Christ is still great news for the sinner. The birth of Christ is still an open invitation for you to repent of your sins and place your faith in Him to be saved. Be saved today. Maybe, believer, you've already been born again by God's grace. Which I would caution you, don't quickly justify yourself to that place. But maybe God's Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. And you need to repent also. And say, Lord, refocus me on the glorious truth of your birth. And the wonder that you and all your glory would come for me. And let that change the course of my life. We have to be called to repentance. We also have to be called to praise. This is praiseworthy church. This is praiseworthy. And who, who, who's not going to celebrate this? Who's tasted this glorious reality of the gospel? Celebrate it with all your heart. Unashamedly. Praise God for His glorious salvation in Jesus. Lord, Your Word is effective and powerful and living and active and sufficient and it doesn't come back void. Though passages like this exist where there's just so much to say and you want to pour out and and you trip over your own tongue, your word still accomplishes its purpose. And I pray it would go forth today and accomplish the purpose of saving, saving the lost and strengthening the faith of your children. Thank you. That's the only thing I can think to say, Lord, is thank you for the truth that we've looked at. Born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. For bearing the weight I couldn't bear and taking the guilt that was mine. Thank you for your righteousness. Now, Lord, I ask you, will you please do a work that only you can do? Save the lost. Strengthen your children. In Jesus' name.